All right, we might as well get started. Welcome everybody to uh, Lunchtime Babbling. My name is Shay Brown. I'm the CEO of Babel AI, a company that audits algorithms for uh, ethical risk, good governance, bias, and disparate impact. Today, we're gonna thankfully be moving away from the talk of, of uh, AI regulations um, and uh, you know the New York City and the DC um, uh, regulations on AI. We're going to talk about um, something that's very exciting to me, which is sort of the the, the dance between um, the technical uh, parts of this whole field and some of the socio-technical um, elements. And I'm I'm happy to be joined by Bo, who is uh, someone which who I've, you know admired his work for a long time, and uh, met Bo last year when he was. Uh, uh, organizing a, a very wonderful Mozilla session that he kindly uh, invited me to. And uh, since then, um, you know, I've asked him to come help us out at Babel. And Bo has uh, is has joined our uh, ethical risk assessment team, um, which is super exciting, and also taken on a lot of, uh, you know, some of the early policy work. And so uh, luckily, Bo was the one who sort of wrangled uh, and led the uh, most recent comments on uh, FTC guidelines that we had. So I'm going to let Bo introduce uh, himself, and then and then we can launch into sort of a discussion on some of these issues. I'm really excited to be here. That's the first thing I want to say. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so yeah, so my name is Boran Biliamla. You can just call me Bo. I pronounce my name in French, which is a little challenging. Um, but uh, yeah, so I'm a researcher, I'm a consultant, I'm an organizer focused on AI ethics. I have a PhD in philosophy from Columbia University. I also have expertise on algorithmic accountability, on risk management, and on stakeholder engagement. And the other thing, and this is kind of what leads us to the conversation today, is that I'm also active in the machine learning research community. Um, so the thing that, you know, I, I want to start by emphasizing is like for me, like like one of my deep, deep passions in the AI risk space. That's kind of why I'm here. That's how I met Shay. <laughs> that's behind a lot of the work I've been doing is the challenge of building bridges across silos. There's so many parts of this work where different communities, different economic sectors, different industries, but also different expert groups, folks from like with very, very different skills really need to come together. And we need to come together very, very quickly. <laughs> um, and um, you know, without that, we can't do you know a really good risk management. And the challenge of just navigating that is like one of my deep passions. Um, that's actually yeah how I met Shay. So I founded this project called Accountability Case Labs. Um, and you know, like the goal is, I mean, for me, like you know, I believe that participatory workshops are actually an amazing tool for navigating the challenge of bri bridging gaps across silos. Um, and what we did, we started last year, is we focused on case studies, we focused on stakeholder engagement, and then we built some really, I think, fantastic participatory workshops, and we also did a little bit of research. Um, and this is really like, you know, like, yeah, this is how I got to know Shay, but also this is what like, you know, drew me to um, AI risk management work at Babel. And today we're gonna be exploring a different side of my work on this stuff. Um, so folks in the AI risk space, and I mean, you know, especially in industry, folks that follow NIST, for instance, the NIST risk management framework work. You know that putting AI ethics in practice is very, very, very hard. Um, and it turns out that in the machine learning research world, um, you know, this challenge is also being very, very hard and it's very, very top of mind. Um, 
and that's really the premise for today's for today's chat. That's the thing we want to be exploring. Um, so, like you know, we're going to be exploring surprising parallels between the challenges of putting AI ethics into practice in industry versus in research setting. And the background for this, and the, you know, the kind of like the occasion, um, you know, for for us to talk about this is, um, you know, I'm currently doing some work in progress, work with my friend Leif Hancock Sleep. I've been working on this paper, and we recently presented it at you know at a workshop and um, at the NeurIPS conference, um, and you know the thing we're thinking through that paper feels extremely relevant for the folks on the side, um, you know, AI, AI risk management. It's also kind of an interesting case study in ways in which the problem of very, very neatly integrating ethics with the technical work that needs to happen in risk management, just how that plays out in different settings. And it just, it just felt like an exciting place to start. Um, so one thing I want to say to begin with is something about the Babel perspective on, on the, the need for seamless and really cross-functional integration between the ethics side of this work and um, the, the technical side of this work. This is at the center of uh, the comments we wrote for the FTC. You know, so like what ended up happening with this is like, you know, like some of our comments, some of the comments are kind of like mini white papers and one of the core ideas for between like one of those chunks so we noticed the FTC was asking all these questions about algorithmic errors. How do we measure them? How do we mitigate them? How prevalent are they? And one of the core you know, commitments at Babel that's behind you know, all of the work we do is behind the many papers that the Babel team has published is we need to understand AI system as socio-technical. That means at every layer, we need to think through the interactions between people and the technical tools, you know, not just you know at the level of data sets and models, but also before you even get a model and data set, but also what happens when you make decisions about are we moving forward, what changes are we making, how are we assessing risk, and so on and so forth. Who might be impacted? Who might be impacted beyond the life cycle of a model? That's also another very very big issue. Um, and a core commitment we have at Babel is. Thinking about the technical part of this problem on its own is a mistake. It is really, really, really crucial to have two components working hand in hand, and that's the AI risk, you know, and for us, like one of the tools we, we, we like and we prone is uh, AI risk management. We also believe that there needs to be a governance part to this work. Um, but, you know, crucially, the AI risk, you know, assessment part of the puzzle for us, and it's the core of a paper that the Babel team published recently, needs to be seamlessly integrated with the part that looks for technical errors, with the part that looks for technical problems. Um, and there needs to be a back and forth between those two components that is really deep and seamless where both part of the work keep informing each other meaningfully. Um, and really what's going on with the conversation today is, um, you know, I wrote again this paper with Leif Hancock's lead, it's a work in progress, uh, where we are exploring a version of that challenge that comes up in the machine learning research space. So that's you know that's the setup. Shay, is there anything you'd like to add on the on this background and the Babel perspective? No, I think you summed it up very well, and it's it's something that I feel like luckily the community is starting to ever people are getting on board, and there was a whole community I think that was in the research side of things and yeah. AI ethics research that were aware of this, uh, and uh, I mean a lot of people that do. Uh, critical theorists, you know, they know that the perspective matters and, and, and um, it just is now starting to trickle into practice. And that's what's exciting. 
Uh, and so, yeah, I'm really, I, I totally agree with uh, everything you said. So we want to move on to a little bit more context because the paper might sound like it's known territory for folks who are deep in the weeds of the, of the machine learning research world. Uh, but for folks who aren't, for folks who are maybe like in industry, for folks who are maybe on the ethics side, it feels like important background. It's also just like an important part of the story of like, you know, like why this is relevant for folks that are thinking about organizations. Um, so the machine learning research world has recently, like very, very recently started integrating ethical risk mitigation into the review process for papers. And that's a big, big deal. Um, so one thing to know for folks in other fields in the machine learning world, um, the top publications are actually conference proceedings. Conferences like NeurIPS are among the tier one publications. Uh, you know, if you're a machine learning researcher, researcher, this is where you want your papers to be. Um, and you know, conferences have sometimes like multiple tracks, but the core one where you get papers is the archival track. Um, and for that archival part of the conference, the papers go through peer review, like like you know, in any other field. Um, and so. What's happened recently since 2020, the NeurIPS conference, which is you know, one of the premier conferences in this world, um, sorry, in the machine learning research world, um, has been trying to systematize its approach to taking ethical risk into account in submitting and reviewing papers. And that's led to the development, and it's very, very recent one, it's still you know, in, its, in its infancy of an ethics review process. So just to like, you know, give people a little bit of the story, Papers get submitted on a deadline. The papers get sent to the people who are evaluating the paper for scientific merits, scientific significance, technical merits, and so on and so forth. We you know, can loosely call that technic the, the technical review part. So those are the pa people who are supposed to be saying, this paper is outstanding, should be accepted. This, this paper is not outstanding, it should not be accepted. Um, and what's happened wi at NeurIPS, and that's curr currently where the review process is at, is that they've inserted inside that process um, in the middle, so they, they give technical reviewers the option to flag papers for ethical concerns. And the papers that get flagged get sent off to a separate team that does ethics review. Um, you know, and you can think of that as like, you know, it's kind of like a mini, like, you know, like ethical risk assessment phase of the, of the review process. The, the ethical review team doesn't have the power to say this paper is going to be rejected. Instead, what they do is they issue recommendations and then turn the decision back to the technical reviewers as well as the area chairs, which are kind of like the people who are like wrangling the process of reviewing a single paper. Um, so that's a bit of the background, you know, for the story. Um, the core of this paper we just, you know, that we're, that we're working on is a um, simple idea. The ethics side of this process <laughs> and the technical side of this process can't be kept separate. It's very clear right now and it's very top of mind for folks in the machine learning community that when it comes to the ethics side of this, you need to be thinking about things that folks think about in research ethics in other fields and that's especially the treatment of human subjects, but also how might this research be used? Questions about use are very, very obviously ethical questions, but we feel you know, especially outside of circles that are like deeply immersed in thinking about, um, you know, AI systems as socio-technical and what that means for risk management. And um, we feel like there's still this like lingering and sticky, um, you know, perspective uh, that wants to frame the technical part of evaluating the merits of, um, of machine learning work as, as separate from the ethics part. And 
the part of this whole conversation, so like there's like, you know, like there's many conversations happening in the machine learning research world about this. You can think of it as, you know, in general, it's about like, you know, ethical, social and political values in machine learning research. Um, and we jump in on a, on a relatively narrow but incredibly important part of this, which has to do with benchmarks. So one of the unusual features of the machine learning research world, um, and it's a thing that's you know like been picking up steam. Shay could probably like say like a lot more to, than than I could about the whole like you know like history of this. Um, you have what's what no, what what is called benchmarks, which are you know metrics, performance metrics. This is how we're going to measure how well you do, plus data sets, and they're designed to be hard. They're also designed to help identify what models have state of the art performance on different tasks. And you know, so in recent years, like thinking, like you know, like one like big moment for from my perspective is the ImageNet comp competition and just how influential it's been in, the, in in this world. But also like you know, the benchmarking paradigm being so important. So what started to happen is that um, these benchmarks have become um, really you know like 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 a core component of how machine learning research gets evaluated. Um, so yeah, ImageNet is the super influential example. Um, you know, on some views, the, the causality question is tricky here, but on some views, ImageNet might have had like a big role and a big influence in the rise of popula popularity of deep learning models in the la last decade. Again, the causality is tricky. Um, and also anecdotally, some folks tout this like focus on benchmark performance and research as a really, really important step towards making machine learning research step, uh, you know, machine learning research much, much more applicable, applicable in practice. In reality, we think this is like a lot more complicated, but this is a big part of what's happening with all of this. Um, and so this is where our paper comes in. What we're looking at is, um, you know, so we acknowledge and we feel like the community is very, very clear-headed about the fact that benchmarks get used and there's risks that come with that. We feel like the community is very clear-headed about the fact that, you know, there's treatment of human subject questions involved. Um, but where the paper comes in is we like really like try to zero in on areas where it may seem like you're dealing with purely technical questions, but you're actually dealing with decisions that are highly, highly value-laden and where you know, thinking through those decisions correctly and carefully requires having an ethical risk management mindset. It requires being on the lookout for ethical risk. And this is kind of, you know, like where the paper kicks off. One more thing to say about this paper. So at its core, it's a philosophy paper for machine learning researchers. We draw on philosophy of science, specifically feminist and anti-racist, you know, philosophy of science. Um, and one of the core things we do in the paper is and this starts from my co-author, Leif Hancoxley, is just noticing, wait a minute, there's this paper that was written 20 years ago about IQ research, about human intelligence research, nothing to do with machines, <laughs> really having to do with people. Um, that's looking at the, the role of ethical values. And, you know, like Leif just noticed, like, wait a minute, like the points that are made in the paper are incredibly similar to the points that people are starting to make about machine learning benchmarks. And so the starting point for the paper was like, can we write a paper and collaborate on something that, 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 you know, like thinks through that connection? So what's the similarity between the two cases? It's kind of like a core part of like, you know, what, what gets the paper ticking. Um, we, we argue that machine learning benchmarks and IQ tests share similarities at in their structure. They both involve setting standards for describing, for evaluating, and for comparing performance on intelligence-related tasks, 
Another core similarity is that they both enable research ecosystems focused on intelligence as practical performance. There's a related analogy here that might be helpful for folks who like aren't familiar with benchmarks. You can kind of think of benchmarks like standardized tests for algorithms. This would be another direction that's you know exciting to, to explore. But so having this you know conceptual parallel in mind and this, this argument we make that you know there's structural similarity that allows us to explore what insights from this fantastic old critical scholarship looking at the ways in which values enter into all the decisions that get made about human intelligence research how can we unlock those lessons bring those lessons into the machine learning space and this is kind of like you know this is the premise of, of the paper um so you know like high level picture um there's you know like like really like like three core areas where we're like you know we, we highlight similarities between the, between um, both like the human intelligence case, but also the machine learning uh, benchmark case. And the first one is definitions and task selection. How do you define intelligence? And also, how do you define what tasks to evaluate on, you know, and in, in a way that, are like that are just like relevance to intelligence? How do you decide what tasks belong in a machine learning benchmark? To use an example, so um, recent, uh, you know, uh, benchmarks meant for language models. There's this new benchmark called Helm that in that, that very prominently involves um, a test for toxicity. How good is this language model at dealing with toxicity? It's only meant to be one of very, very many challenges that um, you know the models that try to pass the Helm benchmark are meant to tackle. But it's very, very interesting because you know toxicity um, is incredibly important. It's incredibly important in content moderation. But to, to like treat it as a really this is a core thing that a model that's that a language model needs to be good at. That's a really interesting choice. And it's a choice that you know we believe should be framed as you know, uh, needing to be informed by ethical risks, needing to be informed by ethical values, needing to be informed by the social part of this puzzle. Um, second layer um, that, um, you know, is going to be familiar for folks in the AI auditing space <laughs> that we zero in on is questions of validity. So I'm thinking of us AI auditors, AI, you know, risk management folks, we're thinking of hiring algorithms, we're thinking of things like emotion detection algorithms, and we're asking, sure, your model is giving a score. Is that score measuring anything real? Is it measuring anything meaningful? Is it measuring anything significant? Um, and in a lot of you know the statistics and, and science world, these are framed as, as validity concerns. There's a lot of validity is extremely complex, extremely rich. Um, the thing we do is just we flag and you know like we go into a little bit more details, but we f we, we we believe that the selection of like what standards are you bringing to thinking about the validity side of um, machine learning research as one that also needs to be informed by ethical risks. And there's the third one, which uh, is, you know, is, is a little tricky um, to measure. Uh, that's, that's a part of the paper where we get into uh, considerations that we believe are important, but where like, you know, like making the point is a little bit harder to prove. And we call this path dependence, or like concern with feedback loops. Uh, the way in which different kinds of models, different kinds of benchmarks reinforce um, what actually happens in the world and, and in positive feedback loops. And in the case of human intelligence research, so what we were thinking about with this like critical scholarship is a really important point that gets made about the way in which results from human intelligence research, once they're out in the world, 
shape the way people are treated, shape the way people are educated. A very, very prominent example of this is the so-called black-white IQ gap in the United States, where some people have claimed um, that there is a gap in IQ scores between African Americans and the white population in the US. Um, and there's, at this point, multiple decades of scholarship that is critically assessing what that does. What does that do to the way teachers treat members of different groups? And how does that, in turn, potentially impact performance on intelligence tests? Um, so like these, like these, these tricky feedback loops, uh, we think, needs to be front and center and evaluated also for ethical risk. They're th and that's a hard thing to do. So that's like a high-level overview of, of, of what happens in the paper. I want to invite folks to take a look at it if you want, if you want to hear more. Um, at this point, I would love to move to questions, to practical problems, but also perhaps moving to thinking about solutions. Uh, yeah, th thank you, Bo. I mean, I, that's, that's so fascinating. I think, like, if I were to start, with the, start at the end, like with the, the, the feedback loops, the bit that yeah. it is difficult to tackle that question but i think it's also it's demonstrably true and i i just have, have maybe yet to demonstrate it but i think uh if you have a benchmark it drives innovation yes and i think that people have written about um benchmarks being the thing that that really pushes uh it sets the north star for where you put your efforts yeah and so I could easily see that, um, and that and that, that is a feedback loop. You know how 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 well um, you do on these benchmarks will decide how seriously people take you or what things you want to focus on. Yeah. And so, so you are arguing then that um, if you don't think about ethics, let's say for that one little piece, if you don't aren't considering broadly ethics or socio-technical uh, yeah. concerns then you might be going in a direction which is not necessarily one that people want to go in or yeah. it's it's uncritical or uninformed yeah. in those could you think of like um like any scenario where where that might be a big worry like what's the you know i don't want to put you on the spot here but i'm trying to think through and i know this was the toughest area so i'm, I'm pushing on the toughest area but where could we where could we see that sort of start blowing up you mean the feedback loops, right? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so this is hard. Uh, there's there's a paper called the Benchmark Lottery that gets into some of that mindset. There's like other like interesting papers that get into that territory that, that we cite. Um, the thing that's on my mind here is, um, I mean, there's there's a few things, but like, you know, one of the core things that, you know, that, that's in like kind of like the practical recommendations part of the paper that's like really front of mind and thinking about like, like what do you need to have in mind given that there are these feedback loops? And for us, like the core mindset that we need to have is that um, individual solutions aren't gonna, aren't gonna be enough. They're just not gonna be enough. Individual action will not help solve problems that involve all of these feedback loops between the research that gets done, the benchmarks that get released, the actions that people take in the world. Um, we need to frame this problem as a collective action problem. We need to frame this this problem as as a problem that has to do with social structure. Um, so, like you know, th this it's not a direct answer to your question, but it's kind of like you know, like like it's like you know, like one of the front of mind components of this for me is like 
you know, we want to invite, and that's that is the hard hardest part. We want to invite the community to think through what might be steps that can meaningfully be taken to address the fact that this requires collective action and not just isolated action. There's one in particular, like you know, um, strategy that's very front of mind for me right now, coming out of NURPS. Um, I met, um, you know, had wonderful conversation with Subo Majumdar at NURPS, um, who started very recently um, the AI vulnerability database project. And the thing that stands out from think from like hearing, you know, Subo talk about the project, um, but also, um, you know, from like reading through, like I, I just like recently started reading through, uh, you know, what they're up to is. Um, the mindset of building knowledge bases that have two really, really crucial features. The first one is that they're built um, by, uh, with the concern of collaboratively, including you know, like impacted communities, flagging where are there known problems? Where are there known problems either with models, with benchmarks, or with data sets? Known vulnerabilities. But the second key component, and this is inspired, like the strategy for this is inspired by this, uh, tools that get used in the cybersecurity space. The second component is how do we organize a knowledge base of these known problems that is structured in a way that helps practitioners directly put the, les the lessons in, into action. And the way they do this is through a combination of a ta taxonomy and classification of the known problems together with in-depth you know examples and evaluations uh, the, you know the way I think of them and again like you know like I I'm not like deeply familiar with their work but that's like superficially my understanding is it's a little bit like you know like in-depth evaluations that are meant to um, give folks the details including sometimes data sets um, uh, that they can then lean into in troubleshooting the work that they're doing themselves um, and we think of that as a great example of a systemic solution to, to, to the kind of problem yeah. we're dealing with that involves hybrid feedback loops. It can't be the only solution. I'm personally very excited about bias bounties as another component of you know, solutions that need to be explored. But there's many, many more. I kind of want to turn the question back to you. I could be curious to hear what solutions to the structural part of this are front of mind for you, Shay. Yeah, no, I think, well, I, I mean, this has been our big struggle. So one of our, yeah. our, you know, this is core to our mission, mm -hmm. you know, trying to mitigate these these risks. And it, I mean, one of the key things that has to be is education. Like there, there has to be kind of a, a lattice of or a foundation of education, because I mean, one of the things that I was thinking as as I was listening to you talk is, you know, I could easily see uh, a researcher a machine learning researcher doing you know working on optimizing some uh some neural network thinking to themselves or thinking of themselves and in, in some sense like a, a mechanic or an engineer working on a piece of a car and then someone comes in from the outside and says well you know these cars uh these cars might be might be used to uh recklessly and could and could kill people and the mechanic yeah. being or the engineer feeling like, oh, I know, but yeah. what am I supposed to do to do about it? Now, yeah. th that's not a perfect analogy. Uh, uh, we know that because, I mean, probably for two two main reasons. One, that uh, the the research in artificial intelligence currently, or machine learning in particular, uh, there's a real trend now towards reaching out into applications. 
you know, in order to be novel, in order to kind of push forward with research, and it's the publisher parish kind of mentality that pushes people to, can I apply this in a novel area, oftentimes yeah. outside of their expertise. And so yeah. engineers in a highly structured environment don't do that. And so that's unique to AI. And the second is that, um, uh, sort of conversely to that, people on the outside are grabbing AI applications or the newest models and they're applying it themselves to a yeah. variety of different things. So it's a double, from both ends, it's getting uh, shoehorned yeah. into places where people don't understand what the implications are fully. Yeah. But nonetheless, that is the attitude that a lot of engineers will have and do have. Yeah. And so the education s systemically, if you were to ask um, how, do, how are you gonna utilize those tools to inform what you do, yeah. that, that takes a lot of uh, of education. So you just having yeah. come from neural uh, neurolips, I mean, how how are the conversations now? You, it's probably self selected that you talk to a lot of people who are interested <laughs> in, in what what you do. But um, did you have you experienced people with this sort of attitude like I'm not sure that if it applies to me kind of attitude? Yes. Um First and yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a backstory, like you know, so um, you know, we wrote this paper very quickly, thinking the ideal venue for this is the fact conference, which is going to happen, and the call for, for papers is out right now. But we were wor working on this in the spring, and so we wanted the deadline in the spring, and we actually just let's just get this out very quickly and send a version to Nurips. Um, and one of the reactions we had from a lot of reviewers and you know like this is like you know like like with the caveat that it was part of like the new like benchmarking track and they're, they're just trying to build out infrastructure and you know like the review process is you know is, is very much like something that's, that is being built out but you know it was clear that you know for quite a few of the reviewers the fact that it wasn't a technical paper that involves data sets was a problem um, it was a problem because it made the paper less interesting to them personally, but also like, you know, they, they were very, very like, you know, like explicit. It's like, we don't know how interesting a paper like this is going to be to the audience. Um, there's a backstory to this, which is that in the 2021 first edition edition of this benchmark track, there were five papers that were argument driven position papers. Those are the papers we meant to be engaging with. Turns out that this year there isn't a single one. We were the only one that even submitted. Like I got to see because I was also a reviewer, so I got to see what papers got submitted to the benchmark track, and we were the only position paper. And that's basically been pushed out of the benchmark tracks. You know, so like papers that raise concerns, like what we're like like what we're raising. Um, that's the first thing, like very personal story to say. The flip side, though, um, and you know, this was like one of the most I don't know, like. Presenting, you know, a poster in a conference is, is, is an interesting experience. It's always a little bit hit and miss. Um, but, you know, one of the really exciting moments that happened for me this week is when a researcher came to us and, and they were already familiar with our paper. They'd read it. Um, and they were like, actually, like, you know, like the core tools that you introduce, uh, there's some conceptual moves that, that I haven't, got, you know, gone into in just like this, 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 this chat. But they were saying like, so they're a language researcher, NLP researcher. The core tools you introduce are really important to the paper that we're writing right now, <laughs> um, yeah. and those tools are helping us do our work. Um, so, another way to like step back and like describe this is there's really a split. 
between the parts of the AI research community that are deeply immersed, including very technical folks, but that are deeply immersed in the need to think of this as a social technical problem, and the parts of the community that, that, that aren't and that don't like uh, you know, uh, framing machine learning research as social technical research. Um, and it's a really interesting split, and I think those conversations are ongoing. That would be kind of like, you know, like, like if, I, if I had to, you know, summarize the conversation in Europe, it was like, and, you know, like, we had a lot of people come to us and be like, this paper is really cool, like, you know, we find it super helpful. But, um, you know, but, you know, like, yeah, I, I do want to, like, be very explicit about the fact that we also, you know, in, th in this case, like, got a very clear, like, this is not a technical paper, it doesn't yep. belong here, folks, um, you know, as part of this story, and that's how, like, you know, so the paper ended up being in the you know workshop track which means it's not not archival it means we can still publish it which we will do <laughs> yeah we've had many journals reach out to us since we made it public to you know like so you know it's gonna it's gonna be published eventually but um you know i think in terms of like w what other conversation in europe's like that's a kind of cool part of the story <laughs> yeah well so i'd like to focus a little bit on something that's stood out to me as interesting i mean the parallels between what's happening, the disconnect between the ethical considerations yeah. uh, and the technical considerations or, or measurement and what we see in industry because it, it is, that is a big problem. And I mean, at first glance you would think, or at first thought you'd think maybe in academia or in the research community, they're a little more, uh, they think more broadly, maybe less of a uh, pressure uh, or deadlines in terms of getting things out, and so there might be mm -hmm. more of a tendency to try to integrate uh, those those two. Um, now, one thing that we recommend when we're talking to industry is this idea of cross-functional teams. Mm -hmm. And so now I want you to reflect, if you can, like on what's the, you know, when you have a company that's trying to put out a product. You know, having bringing in someone from legal, bringing in someone from product, bringing in somebody, you know, maybe engaging with external stakeholders. That's something that can happen. There's a sort of nimbleness to industry that allows that kind of thing to happen. But what does that look like when you're talking about something that can be as sort of rigidly set up as academia? How does that happen when you have a research group? You know, where where does that co come in? How does the cr sense of cross-functional play a role and can I mean can people implement that yeah there's so many layers to the way this plays out in industry one of them that's like top of mind for me um, and it's a conversation that you know is really important to be having so if we look at things like you know the NIST risk management framework like one of the comments that I've seen you know community members to including the folks from uh, from the AI vulnerability databases um, look, you know, this whole, you know, mindset is incredibly helpful, but how do tiny, tiny, tiny companies implement something like this? When you're an extremely large company, you can afford to build governance infrastructure that is extremely robust. You can afford to, hi to hire ethics and legal experts full time and bring them into what you're doing. But when you're a tiny startup, you know, um, a major concern a lot of folks have is, is look like, you know, we need to have a minimum viable product uh, and we need to spend our money towards building that, like the, the minimal version of, of, of what we do that, 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 you know, our investors are going to be on board with. 
And that means in terms of like early spending for like tiny, tiny companies, it's extremely hard to justify spending a lot of money on roles that aren't directly related to building out the product. So basically like, you know, spending money on things other than engineering and then maybe eventually product management, maybe eventually UX. I mean, but that's a later step in terms of like building out, you know, like a machine learning startup. Yeah. Um, and it, it takes quite a while and it takes companies that, that, that have like a decent size to be able to say we're going to hire ethicists full time here. What's the flip side of this? I mean, I'm thinking really like of, of like why work like what we're doing at Babel, uh, you know, is helpful, uh, but also like what all the, all, the, all the many companies that offer, you know, AI risk services. Look, to my mind, like, you know, like a core part of what folks need to have in mind is yes, if you're in a place where you can hire, um, you know, you know, folks that are deeply immersed in the ethics and the social and, and, and political side of, of, of these conversations, hire them full time, bring them in as soon as you can, if you can. If you can't, go to service providers who can help advise you on these issues. To me, that's, you know, like, like in terms of like when you have limited capacity, what can you do? That, that, that is, a, you know, it should be a must have component. And it's also, to my mind, part of why, you know, it's like we're, we're rolling out this process audit to get back to some of the stuff that's on our mind at Babel. Yeah. And, and, you know, as part of this process audit, which, you know, like it's like a first version, uh, you know, um, you know, of it's a first attempt at doing something like a process audit. It's meant to be very, very minimal. We have governance requirements that are minimal, but we have governance requirements. We also require that folks do an ethical risk assessment. That means the kind of work that folks like, like, like us do, but you know, that many other, many other teams do. We, we, we give folks options. They can do it however they want, uh, you know, for the purpose of the current version of the audit. They have flexibility, but that needs to happen. Otherwise, we will not certify them. <laughs> yeah. We will not pass our audit. Um, and then they get to do the technical testing. Um, you know, to my mind, to my mind, yeah. Like, you know, if you're so small that you can't hire ethicists and and folks like us full time, uh, you know, you need to rely on service providers who can help you uh, bring that knowledge to the table. That would be my. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm sorry for the babble pitch, but but I really yeah. think this is you know an important thing to acknowledge. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, I I appreciate this. It's not just me do, doing the pitching. That's great. <laughs> So um, I want to remind people if they have if they have some questions for us, um, you can go ahead and put it into the into the Q and A or the the chat if the chat works. Um, but the Q and A will definitely work. Um, so before then, though, I want to I want to go back to this idea of academia, though, because f for you know it's difficult for small and medium. Uh, size enterprises to do this mm -hmm. and the, the solution is you know tr you know i think we we have a lot of material that we've given out in terms of like what's the minimal viable product for like ai governance you know um and then of course people can hire uh, people like us to help them but in academia when you have a uh the way research teams work is almost like there's a fiefdom where you have uh, a professor who gets grants gets a lot of money and they hire they have graduate students and they're there and the, the work is really siloed um, more so even than industry into a very narrow uh, um, a narrow research topic yeah. and so you know this professor 
is and is working with the graduate students and postdocs to develop different algorithms could be natural language processing whatever it is and then knowing that cross-functional teams are good so Bo comes to them at a conference and says listen their one potential solution is is getting cross-functional teams where Mm -hmm. you have people who have some ability to recognize socio-technical risk built into your team what the thing I know I want to figure out is what's the strategy like if we were, you know, we don't work with with universities typically on this sort of thing. It's n- nothing restricting us from doing it. But I, I'm really curious, what would be our guidance for that? Like, yes, can you go find a philosophy professor in your university? Do you get a? I, do you yes. train specific? <laughs> do you train people in your your graduate students on this? Like, do you start from trying to educate people within your group? Do you bring other people? Yeah. What's what's you know if we were if somebody hired us for a particular research group yeah. to help them out what would be our advice? I I had folks ask me this question at the conference. There's two sides to my answer. Um, I think there's like a gold standard here, which is bring in a s- social people research or ethics expert into the writing for articles. Make them co-authors. There's a case that's on my mind. It's one of the papers that I found exciting. I'm really excited to get dig into, um, you know, from the conference. Uh, the title is "Picking on the Same Person: Does Algorithmic Monoculture Lead to ho- to Outcome Homogenization?" And the story for this paper is it's a collaboration between computer science folks, and it's like led by a computer scientist, but it's but but it very prominently features um, Kathleen Creel, who's a philosopher who works who works on these issues. Um, and it's the kind of work that just cannot happen without having, you know, folks on the people and the ethics side being at the table in the writing. And I think, you know, like, like the gold standard, the thing that people like ideally should all be doing is bringing, br- bringing in ethicists as co-authors. Like, side note on this, in machine learning, it's very common to have very, very many authors. It's a field where multiple authors aren't frowned upon. And there's tons of good work that's being done by teams that recognize the importance of bringing in, you know, like like social, um, you know, um, people and, and ethics experts into the writing process. If you can't do that, um, what I would like to see, besides things like ethics review, what I would like to see is more collaborative spaces for folks to come together and flag the challenges that they're encountering, the issues on which they want guidance. I would also like to see projects like the Avid database thrive and, and help get these conversations going. Um, that would be like my wish list for like you know the academic research world. Yeah, well, I think this is one of those th- places where uh, process can help. You know, like yeah, uh, you know, IRB when people do human re- yes. subject research, IRBs are <laughs> yes. they force people to c- think about things. Yeah. But you know, if you're working with data that has people in it. You know, it, is there a sense where an IRB, Yeah. can we argue for a, an IRB-like yes. process for, or when there is, when the outputs are likely to affect people? Yeah. You know, that that's one, one process I can imagine. That, that is such a, that's a, such an important point. Um, so the thing with IRB that's on my mind for this specific problem is, what are the trigger conditions? You're working at an institution, and normally, you know, in the research world, IRB is like a hoop you have to go through as a researcher under specific circumstances. And so, like, the process challenge is just like getting very clear on like what are the trigger conditions. You're in a CS department, 
doing machine learning research. When do you have to send your work to the IRB pro team? And, and basically, also, maybe should you just always do it? Like, should it always be part of machine learning research? Um, but the trigger conditions there on the process are like hugely important. The other side of this that I think is really important to have in mind and to acknowledge, and that's you know a point that folks make, but I, I feel like I'm not hearing it often enough when I hear I IRB being like touted as like an incredible tool, which it is. It really makes a difference. Um, but you know, to my knowledge, IRB processes are best suited for you know um, problems and harms that are completely known quantities. And there's a simple process reasons, reason for this. Uh, you know, you send your paper and your pro you know, research proposal to the IRB, they need to relatively quickly, without doing very, very deep fact-finding, they need to relatively quickly be able to say, yes or no, this can move forward. Um, and this means that IRB processes structurally come with challenges in identifying problems, harms, risks that are less obvious. They're yeah. not currently completely known quantities, and that needs to be acknowledged as we, uh, you know, promote. And we, I mean, I personally do want to see IRB, you know, not just in in, in academia, but also in industry. I want to see, you know, processes like that being implemented. But I also want to see acknowledgement of, you know, the way in which a process like IRB is especially well suited for very known quantities, and that's great. That's what it should be doing. But th that also means that there needs to be other steps in play. There needs to be steps through which we identify what are the non-obvious risks? What are the risks that we haven't yet spotted? What are the risks that, like, you know, yeah, what are the risks that require hard risk assessment work? Yeah. Um, you know, and, 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 and yeah, and I want to see folks being very clear-headed about the need for both. That's, that's what we might like. Yeah. yeah, that's a really good point. I think, um, yeah, I mean, that's part of why we, that's part of the struggle we had developing the process audit, uh, the criterion-based audit, is that you you know you're going to miss things, and you know that you can't foresee everything. And part of uh, requiring organizations to do a process is that, that the, it just increases the likelihood that by doing that process, they can spot things that might have been missed. Um, but there, you know, there is a place for the other kind of work that we also do, which is the really deep assessment where you bring in a lot of experts and you interview a lot of people. And those ethical risk and bias assessments are, the, you know, if everybody could do it for every algorithm and it d didn't cost a lot of money, like that would be ideal, you know. <laughs> and in some sense, I've even uh, thought like as we start automating in the future, a way, automating away a lot of jobs, you know, what are the uniquely human things that are left to do uh, besides mm -hmm. just, you know, uh, creative stuff and enjoying life, which I think is should be top priority. But there does need to be, I think, a, a cadre of uh, highly skilled humans who are able to interrogate systems mm -hmm. in very deep ways um, from lots of different perspectives. And I think that's... I mean, that's a very self-serving perspective to have, but I also think it's, there's a non-negligible probability that that is gonna, might be the state of affairs uh, in the future. And so it's a, that's what makes partly what makes this really exciting. Yeah. 
Any yeah, any last word? Yeah, oh, go ahead, like, please. Last word is just like plus one what you just said, but I just want to flag for me personally, like the the, the, the interest in the non-obvious parts of this work. Like that's where the passion and the fire is for me. Yep. From talking to you, I think I understand that that's also where a lot of the fire and, and the love for this work comes. And, you know, yeah, obviously this is like, you know, what we do and this is the kind of services we offer, but I feel like it's important to also just like say and be explicit about the fact that this is this is where like for us this work gets so exciting yeah yeah no it's uh it's like it's the ultimate puzzle uh you know if you if you like sudoku or if you like wordle you know it's this is the sort of uh, ai meets human rights version of uh of sudoku uh, not to minimize it in, in, into a game but it but there is uh, something very satisfying with picking apart a socio-technical system to sort of looking under every rock to find ways in which things could go south and and try to figure out ways to mitigate that. It requires like the balance to curiosity and rigor and, and, and problems that that have that feature. I just I, I love them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, Bo, thank you so much. I think uh, let me check. I don't think we have any any questions that we haven't covered. Um, Thank you so much for uh, taking the time out of your day to come and chat with us about this and it's super exciting research and we'll be sure uh, to those who are uh, who are uh, listening in um, when we post this on YouTube we'll have a link to the article and everything so we can uh, we can take a look at that and maybe some other references if you've got some other things you want to share um, thank you uh, have a good day everybody thank you for showing up and uh, we'll see you next time on lunchtime babbling thank you so much. Thank you.